According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. Spent so much time in Proverbs chapter 10. I think uh, my Bible's permanently open to that part of the Bible. But we're in Proverbs chapter 11 now. And continuing the same themes and poetic structures from chapter 10. So we have the parallel uh, poetry that we are accustomed to with antithesis, an A statement, but a B statement, and, uh, and so forth. Chapter 11 continues the same themes and poetic structure from chapter 10. And so contrast of the righteous and the wicked. Every pericope heading from chapter 11 to chapter 18 has the label contrast the upright and the wicked. And then we're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, so we're getting a good start on it. Uh, before we begin this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We can set aside distractions. The Holy Spirit can gather our thinking and we can bless and glorify Jesus Christ here this morning. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your faithfulness day by day and morning by morning. Father, great is thy faithfulness. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, the truth of the word of God and the stability it provides, Father, so that we're not constantly riding a roller coaster up and down and tossed to and fro. Father, I thank you for stability that comes by living with you day by day and moment by moment, Father. And I uh, call upon your faithfulness this morning as we study to show ourselves approved, that you would set aside distractions, that you would hedge us about and protect us, that you would bless our time in your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, as we, uh, let me just pick up where we dropped it. Where did we drop it? Ah, we're down there in uh, point five with integrity in point four, the underlying attitude. That's where we have to pick up. All right. So uh, under point two, the personally righteous individual, personally living in God's wisdom, will manifest a public integrity. And that's how God works internally. We have individual believers, and individual believers are being shaped by the Word of God, and individual believers that are operating with personal righteousness, with personal wisdom. Then as the outworking of that impacts culture and impacts society. And if there's enough believers, if that pivot grows, if that salt and light intensifies, then we start to see more and more of that being expressed in public. And this is the core principle behind public wisdom. In other words, we're not, it's, not, it's internal from the bottom up. It's not externally imposed from top down. We're not forcing society to be wise and moral we have wise and moral people that comprise the society, right? And that's the, that's the, the I say it's the secret. There's no secret about it. It's been written down here for thousands of years. This is how God designed it. And so we have uh, personally, it's, you know, really, how do you have a moral family? How do you have a moral marriage? 
right? You have, you have wisdom in your family, you have wisdom in your marriage because you have parents or you have a husband and a wife, each one with personal wisdom, each one that's being transformed by the Word of God, each one that's walking humbly with their Lord. And so uh, a husband that's doing that, a wife that's doing that, they come together and, and, uh, and, and so this is what you're promoting within your marriage. This is what you're promoting within your family. This is what you're promoting within your community or your nation. It's bottom up not top-down. And it's an internal transformation. It's not an external um, control. It's not an external uh, conformity, all right? Conformity to this world is not what we're, what we're driving at. We're driving at the transformation by the renewing of your mind. And that is so huge, okay? And so uh, I mentioned this a week ago, and, and, and someone might say, well, yeah, but... Okay, well, what about law? Isn't law top-down? Isn't law authority over them? Isn't law uh, forcing things? Law doesn't force a thing. Law simply applies the consequences when that internal transformation is not happening and the person is living in defiance of God's good pleasure. Law doesn't force a thing. Even today, you know, secular laws don't force anything. They enforce when there are violations, say, or they're supposed to. All right. Thirdly, public wisdom appears in commercial transactions. And so when we start the detail now in verse 1, uh, we see a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. We don't cheat in business. We don't steal. We don't rip off our customers. We don't, uh, or as customers, we don't rip off the business. We want just scales. Uh, and it's not a secular issue. Yes, the application happens in secular life. Yes, the application happens in the community. But it's a spiritual issue. Because we are called upon to image God. We are called upon to glorify God. We are called to serve the God of righteousness and the God of justice. And so if we're going to cheat in business, in our business practices, then we are in defiance of that God of justice. We're not glorifying Him in, in such a process. So it appears, or it doesn't appear, in commercial transactions. And the idea of just weights and the abominations, this uh, not only here, but we looked at Leviticus 19, we looked at Deuteronomy 25. And the idea that this thing would be called an abomination is extraordinary, because we've done studies on abominations before. All right, Abomination is, is serious business. This is, it, it offends the Lord. He recoils from this. It is the idea of something that is so detestable that you push it away. You want nothing to do with this because it offends you. It, 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 it's detestable in your sight. And so it is a revulsion, a compelling impulse to drive something far from one's presence. And this is what the Bible describes in a lot of things. Okay? And we really, I mean, I think we did the bulk of our abomination studies back in uh, chapter 6. All right, When we did, there were six things the Lord hates, yes, seven that are an abomination to Him. But Leviticus 18 outlines every, every imaginable uh, or unimaginable uh, uh, perversion of, of uh, sexuality uh, and, and so many other things that are called abominations in the Word of God. And uh, we want to be clear on these things. And then the antithesis is ratzon. In the antithetical parallelism here, we have an A statement and a B statement, and the hinge is a but, so it's a contrast. On the one hand, there's the desire to just push it away. On the other hand, there's the desire to just hug it close, okay? Because a ratzon is a delight, and something you delight in, you want more of. Something you delight in, you want closer. You want to embrace it. 
And so the imagery is pushing it away versus hugging it. And, uh, and it's so simple. I mean, even a, a little kid can grasp the idea of things that they push away or things that they, that they hug. And uh, something that is a favor is a delight. A delight is a favor, something that is favorable, an acceptable thing. And uh, in many of the Levitical references and other Old Testament references, the application, of course, comes to sacrifices, comes to offerings. And are they acceptable or are they not acceptable? Are they a sweet-smelling savor? If so, it's acceptable. It's something that pleases God. It's a delight to Him. And so He wants more of it, and He will embrace it. But if it's not a sweet-smelling savor, if it's an abomination, then He pushes it away. And it should be as, uh, as simple as that. All right, and so uh, we have the references there. And we spent, uh, I think, the bulk of last week dealing with that. I do like the use, though, in Isaiah 61, 2. If I grab just one verse off this slide, Isaiah 61 and verse 2. Since so much of our thinking has been in Isaiah and Jeremiah in recent weeks, recent months, Isaiah 61, 2, uh, from a, a... passage our Lord quoted, right? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the ratzon, the favorable year of the Lord. And that's where he stopped. He couldn't read the rest of the verse. He couldn't go on to discuss the day of vengeance of our God. Okay? And that day of vengeance, of course, is second advent, and that's what happens with his wrath, and that's what happens at Armageddon, and that's what happens in the tribulation, and, and so forth. Um, but he, when he stops it there with to proclaim the, the ratzon year of the Lord, um, hopefully that, that concept becomes more uh, clear, becomes more precious for us, that we, we have a, a better capacity to appreciate the ratzon as we encounter it in, uh, in the Old Testament. All right, now, underlying attitudes. Uh, when we look at verse 1 and, and then verse 2 and then verses 3 and following, um, we, uh, we, we see the public wisdom in, in verse 1, scales and marketplace and business dealings. We see public wisdom in verse 3 with uh, integrity versus crookedness and guidance as far as the expression of these things. Doug? The expression of these things. Um, in, in public, in verse 3, the integrity of the upright will guide them. I do think this is public rather than personal. All right, And then riches and, uh, and so forth. In any event, what's the, what's the attitude here? We have verse 2 that, that's given here. All right, Verse 2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. And we tend to think of this in a personal way, but I think it actually continues the, the concepts here in public as far as a public wisdom is concerned. It speaks to the underlying attitudes. Point four, then, in the outline. The underlying attitudes in just and unjust commercial uh, transactions are the attitudes of pride versus humility. All right, pride versus humility. Why is the person cheating in business? Why does he have unjust scales? Why is he ripping off his customers? Or why is the customer ripping off his his, uh, merchant? Why do they cheat in business? Because they can. <laughs> because they don't think they'll get caught. Because they think they deserve it. Or whatever other reason. It is a pride application. It is arrogance at work. 
And so we have issues here of pride versus humility. And each one, by the way, carries with it a consequence. Carries with it a consequence. All right? And um, I think we looked at, did we? Yeah, we looked at these. Because I showed you the rhyming Bazadon wa Yabo Kalon and how Zadon and Kalon rhyme and the, the neat kind of parallelism of this. Not all Hebrew poetry rhymes. Uh, we like poetry when it rhymes, right? Roses are red, violets are blue. You know, in our, in our way of thinking, you know, poetry's got to rhyme. In Hebrew way of thinking, uh, rhyme, they don't care. Um, they're, they're, they're paralleling uh, ideas, they're comparing, they're contrasting. But sometimes it does rhyme, and when it does, I think it's kind of fun. So the Zadon and the Kalon, the idea of pride and dishonor, the idea of the shame and the embarrassment, the public shame, when it comes to this, and cologne is um, is an interesting term there. So the attitude of pride produces a consequence of dishonor, and this is what happens. And the example there of Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel chapter four, he was so prideful, and the consequences of that pride was um, living in the backyard like a goat. All right, was given the mind of a beast and the hair growing out and the nails growing out and and just crawling around in the backyard chewing on the grass and living like a living like a beast. Okay, how shameful is that? And when you go from um, this this exaltation, you know, pride goes before the fall, and you, and you get full of yourself as Nebuchadnezzar did there. And we read it last week. I won't go back this morning, but the uh, he's he's walking around just all full of himself. Aren't I great? Walking around the roof and, and surveying Babylon and saying, wow, look at this great Babylon which I myself have built. Okay, right. To me be the glory, great things I have done. And, and voicing that, see. And uh, to me it's an, it's an extraordinary thing and I'm thankful um, to see the hand of God's discipline upon His Son there in chapter 4. Uh, there was not divine discipline in chapter 2. There was not divine discipline in chapter 3. You know, he, he builds a statue, he demands worship, he throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. And you think, wow, God should discipline him for that, shouldn't he? Well, he's not saved. He doesn't get saved until the end of chapter 3. He gets saved at the end of the fiery furnace. These guys come out of the gospel. I mean, they come out of the, the furnace, right? Because the fourth man was in there with him. Jesus was in there with him. And they come out of the fire. Does Jesus come out with them? Well, no, except in what those three guys had to say, okay? Those three come out, and Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. Right then, right there at the end of chapter 3. I'm convinced of that. It's in the text, the end of chapter 3, first part of chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, God starts to deal with Nebuchadnezzar as with a son. And what son is there that's without discipline, all right? And so he starts to deal with Nebuchadnezzar as a son. And David war- uh, Daniel warns him about that. When, when Nebuchadnezzar has that dream about the, the tree getting chopped down, Daniel says, oh, you need to repent. You need to serve the Lord. You're, you're a believer now, and God's holding you to this standard. And so, in any event, as, uh, as this happens here now, the attitude of pride produces the consequence of dishonor. And this is the, 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 the shame that's reflected in public wisdom or public lack of wisdom. Public wisdom or public folly, I guess I should think of it like that. Whereas the attitude of humility produces a consequence of honor through wisdom. Honor through wisdom. This is the flip side here in verse 2. With the humble is wisdom. 
The attitude of humility produces a consequence of honor through wisdom. Now, we don't have honor in verse 2 except as a, as a supplied or inferred um, antithesis to the, to the uh, dishonor that's there. However, this concept comes back a second time and a third time in the public wisdom portion of, uh, of Proverbs. And when it does come back, honor is specifically spelled out. So I don't mind inferring it here because I think it should be supplied as a concept in the poetry. But Proverbs 15.33 speaks to this. Fifteen thirty-three. Again, so many of these are so similar. Um, verse thirty-two says, "He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding." Uh, and, and pay attention to that because that's not a concept in in parental wisdom. I mean, it is, but this is not a verse from parental wisdom. Okay, so these are principles that you, yes, parents discipline their children, and yes, that produces wisdom, and yes, that's, that's critical in the raising of the next generation, but it doesn't stop when they leave home. It continues. The only difference is God is now the parent that applies the judgment instead of mommy and daddy applying the spankings here, okay? That's why parental wisdom gives way to, to personal and public wisdom. So, uh, there is discipline, and there is listening to reproof, and there is the application there. All right, so that's 15.32, and look at 15.33. The fear of the Lord is inst- the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Before honor comes humility. So back in chapter 11, honor was understood but unstated. Here, it's understood and stated. It's explicit. We have uh, kavod, I'm sure it's, it's pretty sure it's kavod there for for honor, right? Could might be something else. But honor comes before humility. Now, the honor uh, produces a consequence of honor. The attitude of humility produces a consequence of honor through wisdom. Keep in mind, this only, you know, this is true, but the honor will only be from the perspective of those that share your values in this kind of wisdom, right? We will we will honor other believers that are applying wisdom, that are living the Word of God, that's the kind of honor that's being promised here. Not the kind of honor or fame or glory or any of the... Uh, don't, expect, don't expect that the Austin American statesman is going to send reporters and run front page articles on a believer that's glorifying Jesus Christ through living the Word of God on a daily basis. Okay? That's not the kind of honor you can expect. If you're reading these verses thinking, ooh, I'm going to be honored by the world, no. We're going to be dishonored by the world. We're going to be as unknown yet well-known, right? Um, I want to be clear on that as well. Okay, chapter 18, Proverbs 18 and verse 12. Again, we're talking about personal and public wisdom. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. All right? So when personal wisdom is expressed in a public wisdom of humility, then there will be an honor consequence that will be applied. And that will be in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the elect angels, in the eyes of fellow believers that are also disciples of the Word of God. And uh, for those with the capacity to appreciate this standard. Not the fool, not the non-disciple. Okay, And sadly... Even some fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that should know better don't know better because they're just as conformed to the world as the unbeliever. 
they won't honor what God honors because the Word of God is not shaping their thinking. Not, not at this moment anyway. Pray that in uh, repentance that day will come. All right, Luke 14. There's a New Testament message related. Verse 10 and 11. Luke 14, verses 10 and 11. And uh, again, here's the right attitude of humility, and it's expressed in public. It's an application of public wisdom, and there comes honor. So, uh, you know, don't barge into a room and, and just assume that you're the most important person there. So, verse 7 He began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. And so he observes this. And what's he observing? He's observing a public, a personal folly that's being applied in a public folly, right? He's observing a whole crowd of individuals and none of them are living according to the personal wisdom of the Word of God. And so in public now, it's multiplied however many times over how many of these guests are fighting over the seats. So when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then the disgrace you, uh, in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. Okay? And um, which, by the way, you, you probably, you know, you're probably more important than that last place guy, sure. But that's what you're going to end up with because when in, at the time of your humiliation all those other seats were already full. And the last one left is that one down there on the end. We'll pull up a stool for you or we'll, you know, we'll grab the piano bench from the other room because we're kind of out of real chairs. So we'll just bring an, a piano bench in and you can sit on that with you know, like the kids at the kitty table. And um, well, you blew it because you, you, you thought you were right here at the right hand. Okay? And this, yeah, this, this man, this parable is, is so useful in so many applications. His own disciples were fighting over seating assignments. James and John were trying to score prime seating in the, in the millennium. Um, it, I mean, how many different ways can, can this principle be applied? Jesus says, you know what, I don't assign those seats, and, and why, even, why do you think that's something you earn and deserve anyway? The Father assigns these. And, uh, or think about Satan. Ultimately, weren't his five-by wills about seating assignments? Was he dissatisfied? with where his throne was. He, and there was another throne he wanted instead, a higher throne. Not your throne. Okay? To which of the angels did the Father say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your... Not, not you, Satan. Okay? So, um, these applications here. And I think it's interesting too. Um, when he, so he says, friend, move up higher. Verse 10, when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. I mean, start there. Just start there. Just assume, you know what? I am the least important guy in the room right now. I'm the least important guy in the building. I'm the least important guy on the planet. Um, so there you go. And, uh, and then the, uh, the man that invited you will come and say, friend, move up higher. What are you sitting there for? Oh, come on. You shouldn't be sitting there. Come on, sit over here. Then it is a... Uh, a privilege, and it's a blessing. You will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. 
Okay? And there's nothing phony about this. This is legitimate. This is, this is so that it's reflected that you're, you have a personal wisdom, you're applying it in a public wisdom, and that those with the capacity to identify these things are rightly honoring, give honor where honor is due. Give glory where glory is due. Bo- let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And, uh, and the honor is at that point then appropriate. See, there's nothing wrong with, with having a man of importance and then uh, recognizing that in humility and, and, and being respectful of that, see? And so, uh, you know, move up closer, sit here. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's not a boastful thing. It's not a private. Do you think this guy got full of himself? Like, ha ha, look at me, you know? Was he, was he strutting past those lesser minions and, uh, and uh, you know, biting his thumb at them and whatever else, okay? Dost thou bite thy thumb, okay? Old Shakespeare. Um, the, um, no, see, because if he was that boastful and prideful, he wouldn't have taken that humble seat to start with. See, it's not a gimmick. It's true in his soul. And so the, uh, the honor that he receives moving up is, uh, is, a, is a real honor, okay? In his capacity, in the, in the homeowner's capacity, in the capacity of anyone else that's, uh, that's invited there to see it, all right? Uh, for folks who don't have the divine viewpoint capacity, they may, they, may see, they may not see any honor in it whatsoever. They may be just, eh, who cares, right? Because they don't have the capacity to recognize it. And uh, in so many ways, this, we, we try to instill this in our children. We've got to keep this attitude ourselves because the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God and God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. And it's tough, you know. Uh, you're raising daughters and, 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 and the world is telling them over and over and over again to, that, that motherhood has no value and raising children has no value. And if, if they don't you know, do this or do that or whatever, then they're, they're diminished or they're somehow not fulfilled or whatever. It's, um, it's, you got to just lay the standard out for what it is and say, look, here's what the Word of God says. And this is what God honors. This is what's precious in His sight. And uh, if it's precious in His sight, I want it to be precious in my sight. And uh, in my daughter's sight, my son's sight, and in all of us. All right. So we have the issue there. Keep in mind, though, this is point C. Each opposing attitude is sourced in opposing and adversarial wisdoms. We talk about pride versus arrogance, guess what? Or pride versus humility. Each one is sourced in a wisdom. And I've been spending this time talking about how genuine humility is, in for, is, is sourced in God's wisdom. Don't lose sight of the fact that on that other side, arrogance, pride, and, and all of that, it too is sourced in a wisdom. It's just the opposing is wisdom to the wisdom of God. The wisdom that James 3 talks about in James 3, 13 through 18. Each opposing attitude. So if, you, if we're thinking about the prideful person where the pride goes before destruction, or we're thinking about the humble person where the, the humility goes before the uh, honor, in both cases, they're operating on a wisdom basis. It's just they're operating on a different wisdom. The world's wisdom versus God's wisdom. All right, so James 3, verses 13 through 18. And, and I don't know, I'm starting to feel bad. James 3 here. 
I'm starting to feel bad because we're 11 chapters into Proverbs and I, I just there's a part of me that thinks that this should have been emphasized stronger, sooner, <laughs> more often. All right, that it's uh, we have all these antitheses between wisdom and folly, being wise or being a fool, um, and, and, and we don't want to think of it though as as wisdom and no wisdom because it's two different wisdoms is what it is. It's God's wisdom versus the world's wisdom, which is what God considers foolishness. So so when we have these opposites of, of wise versus fool, wisdom versus folly, um, don't lose sight of the fact that on that foolish, folly side of things, it's not an absence of wisdom, it is the embracing of the of the phony wisdom, of the of the satanic wisdom, of the world's wisdom. All right. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying with this? Am I speaking, did I switch to Swahili? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, am I speaking in English? All right. James 3, and, and we can, if we want to bring in other passages from 1 Corinthians of contrasting the different kinds of wisdom, how the wisdom of the world is foolishness towards God and the, the wisdom of God is foolishness towards man and so forth. But here in verse thir- uh, James 3.13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. That verse right there, I think, is, is the textbook definition of personal wisdom becoming public wisdom. All right? We have a personal wisdom. It's transforming our thinking. Now we're going to express it in, uh, in our daily life. We're going to express it in our marriage, in our family, in our workplace, in our community, in our nation. We're going to have the public expression of our wisdom that uh, is our personal wisdom transforming us. But if you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, see that? That's what we're dealing with. That's the pride that we're dealing with in in, uh, Proverbs 11. If you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Because you see, this wisdom, the wisdom being described here in verse 14, is not that which comes down from above. (laughs) Okay, If you're using God's wisdom, it's not going to promote jealousy and selfish ambition. Never. It's not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. Earthly, natural, demonic. And that's the kind of wisdom we all walk with as unbelievers. That's the kind of wisdom we walk with when we're carnal. That's the kind of wisdom that non-disciples are walking with, that are uh, saved but not living in the Word of God. So don't be shocked when their thinking and their actions are just like the unbelievers. What do you expect? They're not using God's wisdom. They're not being transformed. Of course they're worldly. But notice, it's not just worldly. It's not just earthly. It's natural. It's demonic. Whereas you and I are to be heavenly, spiritual, right? Godly. For where jealousy, verse 16 says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And man, take that verse, plug it back into Proverbs 11 too, and you just see it right there. You see with pride comes, then comes destruction. Here it's described as disorder in every evil thing. 
motivated by this false wisdom, motivated by this demonism. Okay, And it is, it really is that black and white. If you're not living in the Word of God, what are you pursuing? Apostasy is falling away from the Word of God. And the Spirit explicitly says, in the later times, men will fall away from the faith. Doing what? Paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. You're not just abandoning God and going to nothing. You're following the course of this age. It is the spirit that's now working among the sons of disobedience. See. And I think that's that's a vital understanding as well. All right. But. Here's our second but. <laughs> okay. We had a but, now another but. We're going back to the first good side of things. Um, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. I think this is James's um, commentary on the fruit of the Spirit. I think James was so affected by Galatians. Paul wrote Galatians before James, and James was affected by it, and he grew from it, and he he had to let go of his Judaism. He had to let go of the stuff that was causing Peter trouble in Galatians chapter 2. It gets reflected here. All right, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, merciful, full of good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And so personal wisdom becomes public wisdom because the transformed believer is living this wisdom out. It has... It has so many applications, and in uh, boy, you're you looking at that verse there in verse 17 and think, all of that's good stuff. I want, I want every bit of that in my marriage. I want every bit of that in my family. I want every bit of that in my state. I want every bit of that in my country. All right. And and what's going to provide that? What's going to produce that? Transformed believers. Transformed believers. Okay. It's not going to be imposed on our nation from the White House or from Capitol Hill or from the Supreme Court. The um, purity and peaceability and gentleness and reasonableness, all those good things, they're produced by believers. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All right, well, there it is. So, um, we're ready now for verse 3. Proverbs 11.3. The upright exhibit integrity, which serves to guide them in every circumstance. All right, before you write that down, let's just read it. Verse 3. Because I, I did something funny with this. I, I'm having fun with verse 3. The, uh, the integrity of the upright will guide them. But the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. And so there it is. I mean, it practically preaches itself, doesn't it? I mean, any questions? <laughs> there it is. I, I blanked it out myself. Because I said, don't write that down, read it yourself. Then I will unblank it. Okay, see? I'm in charge. Thank you, though. Appreciate that. Um, so what does it say? The integrity of the upright will guide them. That sounds good. I want that. Okay, but the B statement is the opposite, antithesis, parallelism. But the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. All right, well, I don't want that. 
<laughs> okay? So, yeah, it preaches itself. So be upright, don't be treacherous. Walk in integrity, don't be crooked. Okay? All right. Crooked showed up a lot this, this summer, didn't it? And this fall, right? Crooked. Anyway, I'm glad this season's over. Um, so it preaches itself. Well, let me, let me expand it. Okay? The upright, with personal wisdom, exhibit integrity, public wisdom. Okay? The upright, operating personally, under the wisdom of the Word of God, exhibit integrity, operating publicly according to the Word of God, which serves to guide them in every circumstance. There is guidance promised. We're not adrift. In contrast to this, the treacherous, I think that's personal folly, which sadly includes unbelievers and non-disciple believers, exhibit crookedness, public folly, which serves to destroy them and everyone around them. When the damage hits, it hits, it hits a, a larger circle than just the person involved. Because the damage is done in public. The damage is done to the marriage, to the family, to the community, to the nation. Okay? You'll notice the pattern here is the laws of divine establishment, right? We start with volition, then we have marriage, and we have family, then we have nations. And then this is how wisdom unfolds. And so all I really did with, with verse 5 was rewrite, or with point 5, was rewrite verse 3, adding more words and uh, trying to explain it out in more detail. And I'm going to show you why it's kind of hilarious to, to do such a thing. Um, 17 words in the New American Standard Bible, or 37 words in uh, Pastor Bob's point five, <laughs> are communicated by six words in the Hebrew text. Six words in the Hebrew text. And it's, 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 it's pure beauty once you learn Hebrew and, and, and can appreciate it once you see it for what it is. And, and this is so true in all Hebrew poetry. But it just struck me in verse 3. I mean, I could have put this slide up a hundred times in ten chapters, but um, it, and this is something that got a hold of me when I taught this in Ukraine. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? And you get nine English words there. It's four in Hebrew. I mean, it is economy of language. It is, it is, it is the brevity of, of expression in, uh, in these ways. So we have Tumath, Yesharem, Tachim. There's your first half. And the Wasalef, Bagadim, Washadim is your second half. You get just six words spelling out everything that's spelled out in, in verse 3 here. And uh, to me, it's, it's, it's neat. All right, three words. What you are, what you do, and the result. <laughs> okay? You're upright. You walk with integrity. You have guidance. It's leading you. Say, in just three words. Tumath, Yesharim, Tanchem. 
In this case, it's the verb, then the, sub, the subject, and then the the, uh, the Hebrews were the original Yoda. Okay. <laughs> verb, subject, object. All right. So, um, with integrity, the upright will guide them. Okay. And this is what we have. And this is um, this is the the thrill for parents in raising children, and the thrill in seeing them launch forth in their own generation. Because if they're walking with integrity, if they're upright, if they're, if they're saved and they're living in the Word of God, you can relax a whole lot better, can't you? <laughs> you know, if they're saved and they're walking in the Word of God, you sleep better at night. If they're unbelievers, if they're saved but not in the Word of God, if they're, if they're being conformed to this world, that's when, that's when you're on edge. That's when you're praying harder. That's when you're, you know, worries of sin. So you're, you're sanctified and concerned <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a prayerful way. And you keep telling yourself over and over again, worries of sin, I'm not worried, but Lord, help my worry. Okay? I do believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I'm not worried, but I'm worried. And, you, and you're praying for your kids. And, and you're praying, see, but the upright, the integrity of the upright will guide them. All right. That's what my, my dad told me when I left home. He had this big speech. I don't know how long he rehearsed it or how long he practiced it, but when he delivered it, it was memorable. And um, he, he basically told me, he says, well, you're saved. You know where all your answers are. You know how to, to, to live the Word of God. And if you don't do it, that's on you. <laughs> Ooh, okay. And, uh, you know, it's what you do, you know? Like a, like a prophet who washes his hands and says, hey, I've taught the truth, it's yours now. That's, that's the key. So the integrity of the upright will guide them. On the other hand, the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. And uh, three words there. And um, Shadim, man, Shadim, that's that's an incredible destruction when you're talking about Shadim. Uh, Wasalef, Bogadim, Wasalef. All right. Um, vocabulary on some of this. How far will we get? Let's start with Tuma. Okay? Not Huma, Tuma. Okay? Huma has no Tuma. Tuma is a noun for integrity. All right? It's a noun for integrity. And it's a feminine noun. There's a masculine noun as well. And I don't see a ton of difference between them other than maybe in poetic passages prefer the feminine noun whereas more narrative passages prefer the masculine noun. And that's not entirely true either because it's tome, not tom. Tome um, is, is in a lot of poetic passages as well in Psalms and Proverbs. The adjective is tamim. So let me just give you the point here. But subpoint B, Tuma. T-U-M-M-A-H. Tuma. Strong's number is 8538. There are only five uses. And uh, four of them are in Job, and this one's in Proverbs uh, 11.3. Um, it does come from the masculine noun, which has 23 uses. The masculine noun, Tome, T-O-M, number 8537. That's got 23 uses. 
And uh, they both rendered integrity. Uh, they have other translations depending, but I think integrity is the main concept and uh, the main idea, even if the translation is somewhat different on, on a particular verse. Um, and we'll see a bunch of those verses as well, including Genesis 20, which I always am, am amazed at. First uh, Kings 9, 4, Job 4, 6, Psalm 7, 8. You see the list that's there. Uh, if you're sitting here live, if you're listening to the MP3, you can't see the list there. So I'll try to recite them as we come through them one by one. Uh, the adjective of tome is tamim. Tamim for blameless. If you have integrity, you have nothing um, you're embarrassed about or nothing that you could be blamed for, nothing that you would regret. And so as a noun, we have those concepts, but as an adjective we're talking about without defect. The, the, the sacrificial lamb had to be without defect. It had to be perfect, without defect, without spot or blemish. And the adjective in, in, in most of those cases is this adjective here we're looking at today, the adjective of tamim. It speaks to our Savior. Our Savior was tamim. He was without defect. He was without sin. That's why he was qualified to go to the cross. So 91 uses on the adjective. <laughs> so say, well, just stick with, stick with tuma. That's only five uses. We can save some time. Because <laughs> you keep expanding, you keep expanding. We go to the masculine noun, and now we've got to look at 23 more places. You go to the adjective, and oh my, it's 90-something places. Well, uh, we're not looking at all of them. We're just giving a representative sample so we get the sense of it. And I think we, we already know the sense of it anyway when it comes to uh, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay? Do we understand that? How we're being, does that mean we never sin again or we have no faults? No, it means we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing in Christ as He shapes us, as we as we are upright, walking with integrity. It's a glorious thing. We certainly can't earn it or deserve it, let me tell you that. All right? But God can work it in us because of what He gave, what the righteousness He gave us in Christ. Also, uh, as we have time, I want to look at the uh, T-DOT, uh, the uh, Texas Department of Transportation. No, the, the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. All right? And uh, there's some interesting comments that are there. But we start with, uh, with Tuma. Uh, let's look at Job. Job 2.3. And you're going to go, oh yeah, I know that verse. Oh yeah, I know that verse. I just didn't know it was Tuma. Not Huma, Tuma. Job 2.3 The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a Tuma, an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. Okay, I'm sorry, there we go. Integrity is Tuma. I think the blameless is probably our adjective of Tamim, but I didn't... Uh, I didn't write that down. All right. And he still holds fast his tuma. Okay? And that's why it's not in chapter 1. It's introduced here in chapter 2. Because in chapter 1, Job is described as blameless and upright, right? Uh, Job 1.1, 1, 1, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. All right, so that expression is repeated in chapter 2, but then he expands upon it. He expands upon it. Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. 
That's repeated from chapter 1. Fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his tuma, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. All right. And so integrity. This, this comes to so many applications and so many principles. And why do we have integrity? Do we have integrity because we're forced to, because we have to? I would put forth, if, if you're forced into it, if you're coerced into it, then it's not integrity. <laughs> All right, it's coercion. The, for integrity, true integrity, like true agape love, has to be volitional, has to be a want to. It has to be an expression of, of, a, of a transformed mind. And for Job, he had that. And he held fast to that, even with the undeserved suffering of chapter 1. And uh, the accusation was, well, he's only serving you because you give him good things. He's only serving you because, man, you gave him that pretty wife and all those kids and all this money and all this wealth. And uh, because you just loaded him up with all this great stuff, that's why he's serving you. It's the only reason why he's serving you. If you take all those goodies away, he'll curse you to your face. All right? And it's wrong. You know, Satan is a false prophet and clueless. And, and he's wrong. Those things are taken away and he still holds fast his integrity. Because real integrity is not grounded in good stuff we're given. Or anything coerced or anything phony. And so now the second bet. This is strike two on Satan's part. Um, well, skin for skin, yes. All that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. Well, okay, I was wrong. I missed that prediction, right? Slightly off on my exit polling, but here's the real thing. Here's why I'm really going to be right this time. I'm really going to be right this time because if you touch his body, now he'll, he'll curse you. And I wonder, I've never considered this before, but how much of chapter 1 and chapter 2 reflects the fall of Satan? when he had stuff taken away from him. Or when he was touched. When that glorious dragon had fire come from within and consume him and leave him as a blackened hulk instead of the gem-encrusted glory that he had been. Anyway, he will curse you to your face. That's what Satan does. He curses Yahweh to his face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan goes out, smites him, um, with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. This is what happens. This is satanic affliction upon the, the mortal flesh. What Paul described as the thorn, the thorn in the flesh, when an angel of Satan physically assaults a, a, a mortal body. And we don't know what form Paul's form took. We think it was his facial disfigurement or the blinding of his eyes. Um, but here, in Job's capacity, uh, the Affliction was such that it was head to toe. Took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Okay, and his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your tuma? Curse God and die. You know, what is it that can take away your tuma? Nothing. But what is it that will lead you to let it go? Okay. And this is, to me, it's, a, it's an amazing concept. It can't be ripped from you, but you can let it go. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. All right. Oh, down, uh, chapter 27. We'll grab these in our time remaining. Job 27. 
27. Um, uh, verses 1 through 4, but uh, Job continues discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right? And the Almighty, who has embittered my soul? For as long as life is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. Talking about his opponents and really talking about God. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. You'll have to pry it out of my cold, dead fingers, right? (laughs) That's what he's saying. About his tuma, about his integrity. Chapter 31 and verse 6. Uh, more of his defense here. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? God is somehow wrong in what he's doing here. That's what Job is saying. If I have walked in falsehood, and my foot has hastened after deceit, then let him weigh me with accurate scales. He says here, God's got the crooked scales. God has weighed me, but they're inaccurate. Because I don't deserve this calamity. I don't deserve this disaster. I've been just. I've not worked iniquity. Is he just not see? Is he blind or does he have crooked scales? What is it, God? If I've walked in falsehood, if my foot is hastened after deceit, then let him weigh me with accurate scales. Let God know my tuma. Job defends his own tuma and says, just God doesn't know it. He's ignorant. All right. Part of his uh, fall. He's, he's, he's in full carnality here. There's no question. He has crossed a line chapters before this even. He crossed the line several chapters prior to this when he starts ascribing um, a false scale to God. That's why he's called a fault finder at the end of the book. All right, uh, well, these are the Tuma uses in Job. Next week we'll come back and we'll see in Genesis, Abraham was so afraid of, uh, of the Philistines that he lied uh, about Sarah and he thought there was no fear of God in this place. Um, and, and what's interesting is there was more of a fear of God among the Philistines than there was in him. You know, Abimelech, the king of the Pharisee, uh, king of the Philistines, had integrity. He had Tuma. And he feared the Lord. And he had an active prayer life. Um, and, and it's interesting to see there. And you wonder, well, where did he learn all that? <laughs> he didn't learn it from Abraham, and Abraham was the covenant prophet. It's interesting. You know, saved as a uh, Gentile believer before the age of Israel, before the, before the age of uh, the, the dispensational transition to the Abrahamic stewardship. And uh, who feared God and held to His tuma in, uh, in that regard. Alright, well we'll pick up on this. Father, thank You for today. Thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for 
repairs to our building. Thank you that we have a building. Father, we're just in so many things, we come before you this morning um, as your uh, sons and daughters rejoicing in your faithfulness. Father, uh, in your hands, day by day and moment by moment, we thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.